Um, so it, it really is good to be back with you guys. Um, I, I treasure these moments with you. I enjoy coming and, and, and spending this time with you and getting in the word with you. And it's even more valuable to me as we've gone through the book of Ephesians because uh, Ephesians is written for us. It's written for Christians to celebrate the gospel together in a gospel-bearing, Christ-exalting, gloriously broken but beautifully redeemed body, which is the church. And so I, I'm happy to gather here with you guys. Um, and I just want to pray right off the bat, um, again, because we can never pray too much, and Lord knows I need it. Um, and then we're going to dive into the text. So Lord, um, man, we're just grateful. We're grateful for the text that Jordan read. We're grateful that you gave that, or Logan read, sorry. Um, you gave that text to us, um, and that's something we should not look past, but that's something we should rejoice over, that the sovereign Lord of the universe wants to communicate something to us tonight through his word. And so we are a blessed people, um, as in a few weeks we will pray for the global church. Lord, there are, there are many languages and many people who have never had the ability to hear that text, to see that text, or to touch the word of God that we have kind of everywhere in our bookstores and on our phones. And so, Lord, we want to be grateful for that. We want to listen to what it is you have to say to us tonight. But most importantly, we want to be able to listen and to apply um, what the Holy Spirit wants to reveal to us. And so we give you this time. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. So, for those of you um, who just listened to the scripture which was read by Logan, and I hope that was all of us, what you really just heard was the syllabus for Why I'm Not a Christian 101. Um, it was really just a laundry list of things that, that Paul was giving that we're not allowed to do as Christians. Um, and, and really, for clarity, the main reason people aren't Christians has nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, foolishness, crude talk. It has to do with unbelief. The root sin, the root of unbelief is unbelief. It's not believing. But when you're in unbelief, you, you, you think and you act and you talk out of that unbelief. You talk as one who has a belief system in a God, even if your God is non-existent. And for someone who's in unbelief, when they were to look at that list that Paul just described for us, they become more hardened and, well, that's definitely not something I'm interested in. Paul didn't just go off the fun hook there. He wasn't calling everybody. It was, it, it was a hard thing for people to look at who are kind of skeptical, skeptical about Christianity. That list is something that might really kind of put the nail in the coffin, so to speak, and turn them away from it. And, and the unique thing about this is we could stand up here and say how to an unbeliever those things might be unattractive, um, that we can't do that. We can't be sexually promiscuous. We can't be foolish. We can't have coarse humor. But, but the, the thing about this is, is Paul wrote this not to unbelievers, but to believers. And as much as, and as easy as it would be to look at that and point it to, to, to unbelievers, to people who aren't Christians, Paul's writing this because these things have a tendency to creep up in the church and in Christian circles as well. And that's why it's in here. And so I want us to look back um, at what Paul was telling us in verses three through four and just pay attention um, to what Paul is condemning in Ephesians 5, three through four. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no, no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So to be a college pastor, I have to put on the garments of being socially relevant to all people everywhere. And so my, my cheat code to that is urbandictionary.com. Um, I go there 
all the time to find out what you youths are talking about. Um, and, and so uh, I love it because it's, it's when you, you get the words and you get the definitions and you get the idea of culture and, and somebody submits a definition and you vote on it and some of them are extremely vulgar and some of them are really funny and some, like I had to look up what hashtag FB meant on Twitter um, and Urban Dictionary was there for me. Um, but keep what Paul had in, what Paul just said, keep that in your mind as I read the top definition for college according to Urban Dictionary. Okay, this was the top definition. A magical place where it is rumored that learning takes place. Although to those who enter it, it is often described differently afterwards as beautiful, and beautiful was spelled wrong, um, as a beautiful land and in which beer flows in amber currents next to a golden pasture, where virgins lie naked with gentle smiles upon their calm, inviting faces, but more precisely, a Shangri-La rite of passage into adulthood, which involves rampant consumption of alcoholic beverages, flagrant and promiscuous sexual behavior, and a general and fundamental disregard for any form of responsibility by its habitants. So that definition single-handedly hit every mark on Paul's list. It is foolish, it is crude, um, it, it is full of filthiness and covetousness and coarse language. Um, and and I, I, I use that and I pull that out to show you that Paul's message here is completely antithetical to our culture. Where we can come into a Christian circle and a Christian meeting and we look at those words and we say, well, who really wants to be sexually immoral? And who wants to be filthy? And who wants to be coarse? And who wants to be foolish? Yet on the other hand, our culture lifts up those things, especially for people our age. They lift that up and they make that something. But the bigger question here is not what did Paul say, but why did Paul say it? Why is Paul making that point? You know, wouldn't Christianity be more appealing if we could just take all those don'ts away and it was kind of come as you are, stay as you are, we'll all get there somehow? Is Paul just the, the fun police going, like if Paul's Twitter bio existed, would it be the Apostle Paul taking fun out of fundamental Christianity since AD 63? Like, is that what Paul exists to do? He's, he's out there, he's pulling fun out of certain areas um, because he has nothing better to do. And so we want to look at why. Why is this of importance to Paul? Why is this of importance to the church? Why is this of importance to non-believers? And so what I want to do in my remaining time here um, is to look at three reasons why Paul is warning us against these things. And then to look at one concluding countercultural hope which Paul will give us. And so the reason one, the first reason why Paul is warning us against these things is because Christ. It's just straightforward because Christ. Why should we seek to avoid all the things that Paul listed? Because Christ. Now for us in here, and, and there's some Christians, and there's some non-Christians, and there's some people who aren't sure what they are, um, we need to back up out of this text to see this fully. We took two months almost away from the book of Ephesians, and so we're kind of disjointed from what's happening here. But for the people in Ephesus who are reading this letter, they're reading it like a letter. And so this, this aspect of become Christ may not be as familiar for us, but for the original recipients of this letter, they knew exactly what Paul was talking about. They knew full well why Paul was giving this laundry list and what it had to do with Christ. Because Paul opened this letter with the saving power of Christ. He says that before the foundations of the world, God, the saving and beautiful God, predestined us as sons and daughters to be adopted into Christ Jesus. And not only was this an afterthought, but this was God's plan all along for Ephesians 1.11 says that this was the whole counsel of God. 
was to set forth this plan of redemption. And at the end of chapter one, Paul tells us that God chose to save us through Christ. And he's writing this letter to us so that the church in Ephesus and whoever reads this letter or whoever proclaims this letter may see the immeasurable greatness and beautiful inheritance that is in Christ who fills all in all. And then um, in chapter two, he tells us that we were born dead in our trespasses. And trespasses means sins, means places we've erred. We were dead in our trespasses. We were sons of disobedience, hostile to God. But God in his great mercy, while we were dead in our sins, sent us Christ. And Christ died for our sins in our place and made us alive through Christ. And now in Christ, we live. And in the remainder of chapter two and in chapter three, he says, you who have been redeemed by Christ are now being gathered by Christ. You are part of this body, this living, breathing entity that is growing together into Christ. He says, we are to believe and to grow and to encourage and to preach and to worship each other into Christ. And then moving into chapter four, Paul says, your life is in Christ. All that you are is in Christ. And then the passage we looked at last time we were here, which is right before what we just read, Paul says this, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Why should we avoid sexual immorality, impurity, filthiness, coarse jokes? Because we are Christ's and Christ's people act differently. See, Paul didn't lead with this because it would have been unfair to lead with this. What Paul led with was what Christ has done for you in light of all of that have nothing to do with these things. In light of who you already are, put these things away. Have nothing to do with them. These things are out of place to the Christian. You see, to the unbeliever in Ephesus, these things are understandable. To, to, to the unbeliever at the University of Montana, these things are understandable. It's not, not acceptable, not right, not justified, but, but understandable. But for the church to be engaged in these things, it blows Paul's mind. He says, you can't do that. You can't, you are Christ's. Christ is not this, Christ is antithetical to this. And look at Ephesians 5, 8. It says, for at one time you were darkness. I never noticed that until I went through it today. I always read it, you were in darkness. But look at what that language is. It's not you were momentarily in darkness. It's not that you dabbled in darkness. It's not that you accidentally fell into sin. It says, you were darkness. You were dead. You were sin. It's a, in, the, in, the, in the dictionary, it would be sin, definition, Tyler. That was it. It's like I defined sin in my natural state. But now you are light. You're not momentarily covered. You're not temporarily covered. You are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. And see, that's connected to Christ. It's not that God waved his pixie dust wand, and now all of a sudden we're light. God made us light through Christ. And because of Christ, we should avoid these things because for Christians, these things are completely opposite and opposed to our DNA through Christ Jesus. Christ is not those things, nor should his people be defined, marked by, or associated to those things. Because of Christ, we're different because we are different. 
The second um, reason Paul gives us to avoid these things is because thanksgiving. Because thanksgiving. Look back at verses three through four again. You guys will probably have these two verses memorized by the end of this. There will be a quiz. Um, you didn't have class today, so we got to get that in here somewhere. Um, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. You see, it's just like, not, don't even be, shouldn't be among you. And then he continues, he says, let there be nor filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. Those things are out of place in a Christian community. They don't belong there. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Let there be thanksgiving. And isn't it interesting that to combat these things, Paul doesn't say, avoid immorality, sexual immorality by being committed in a monogamous one-person uh, sexual relationship through marriage. To avoid impurity, people become pure. To avoid covetousness, people become content. To avoid filthiness, people become wholesome. To avoid foolish talk, become sincere. And to avoid coarse joking, see the value of individuals who you often put down and objectify in order for crude jokes. He says, he says, and be thankful. To avoid these things, be thankful. And we looked at a similar theme that Paul just told us in chapter four. And Paul is committed to showing us the corporate danger of sin and the corporate benefit of Christ. Sin kills community. Christ is exalted in community. Sin kills it. Christ redeems it. And each and every one of these sins hits at least a double on the pain scale. If you look at it, each and every one of these sins is first and foremost a sin against God Almighty. And like for us, like we're not God. God is this, this being that's not created, it's not bound by our perception. He's so much bigger than us. And so to say you sinned against God on one hand is like, well, what does that mean? But on the other hand, God is fully perfect. God is the only innocent creature to have ever lived. Like you think about wronging your old innocent grandma because she's innocent and pure and what has she done to you? Think of how much more the holy and pure God is innocent. He did nothing to deserve being sinned against. He did nothing to deserve scorn and hate and yet each one of us has murdered him in our unbelief and tainted him in our conscious sin. We have sinned against God Almighty. So we sin against God. The double is that each of these sins is also one against somebody else. It's a sin that harms and affects other people. You just look down the list. Foolishness harms people, or at best it wastes people's time. Right? Most of us have been in classes even where there's been a foolishness going on in a class that just, I mean, you probably don't see a whole lot of value in classes right now anyway, but tends to draw that value even more down the drain. Crude joking is typically aimed at other people and attempts to objectify the opposite sex, especially in today's culture. The same is true with filthiness. Covetousness is rooted in what other people have and what you don't have. You want what other people have. I mean, covetousness um, was the first sin where one brother coveted what the other brother had, what the other brother received, and it resulted in murder. Impurity gets other people dirty and sexual immorality is directly related to another person, whether that person is on a screen or in your bed. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6.18 that any sexual sin, it hits the triple. It's a sin against God, it's a sin against another person, and it's a sin against your own soul. See, the point is that your sins are never innocent. 
You cannot belittle sin. Sin is toxic. Sin is harmful. Sin is against you. Sin is against others. And sin is chiefly against God. But thanksgiving is rooted in gratitude. Thanksgiving is something that is thankful. It produces in us a thankful attitude. It's hard to sin against someone when you're grateful for them. Try it. Next time your aunt sends you a package of cookies in the mail, hate on your aunt. You can't do it. You're thankful for it. You're happy for it. You're grateful for it. It's hard to rebel against God when you're smitten with joy for him. Because you can't. Because there's nothing inside of you that is dissatisfied. There's nothing inside of you that wants something you don't have because you are content and you are thankful in that. You see, thankful people are never accused of not enjoying life. I've never seen just in casual conversations like that guy's thankful and, and he really hates his life. It just doesn't make sense. They're thankful. Thankfulness is contentment. Thankfulness is gratitude. Thankful people don't need to rob others of emotions, energy, possessions, and intimacy to feel joy, but rather out of their thanksgiving, out of their fullness, comes a constant flow of corporate blessings. It is a joy to be around a thankful person. I mean, in our group, our community group a couple weeks ago, we had to ask, what is it that makes somebody thankful, and who have you seen in your life that's, that you would say is really thankful? And our group thought about that, and I was thinking, no one, I'm no one's answer, <laughs> but I want to be. Because the people I think of who are thankful are people I could sit in an eight-hour car ride for and enjoy every minute of it because their thankfulness is contagious. And I want to come back to this because this, in a sense, is incomplete right now. Um, but I want to briefly touch on the final reason. Um, and it's probably the least popular reason, but definitely the most important, is because wrath. Why should we avoid these things? Because of God's wrath. Look at Ephesians 5, 5 through 7. For you may be sure that because of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or is impure or is covetousness, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So not only do you have no inheritance, but let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. So why is Paul so against these things? Is it because he hates you? Is it because he's anti-fun? Is it because he's a stickler? Is it because he's, he's older and is tired of younger kids kind of making a ruckus? No, Paul is against these things because he wants you to avoid wrath. Because he wants you to avoid eternal punishment. Sinners stand under God's wrath. Why? Because all sin is against God. And it's just for a murderer to be tried like a murderer. It's just for a robber to be judged as a robber. And it's just for a sinner to be judged as a sinner. Now the beautiful thing about this is, and Paul is writing this to the church in Ephesus, the beautiful thing about this is, is that for Christians, Romans 8.1 tells us that there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We do not, those who are Christians do not fear God's wrath in the same way a non-believer does because Christ took our wrath. God doesn't double wrath people. If we are a Christian, we can have confidence, First John says, confidence before the Lord because of what Christ has done. But for the Christian who easily falls into these sins, we stand in danger of submitting to a former yoke of slavery 
We stand in danger of submitting to a life which hinders our joy and our worship. But I will offer one warning, or John will actually offer one warning um, to those who consider themselves Christian. In 1 John 3, 6, it says this, No one who abides in him, that is Jesus, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now what that's not saying um, is that if you sin, you are under God's wrath. Even if you're a Christian, if you sin, you're, you're not in Christ. Right? None of us are going to be sinless, unfortunately, here on the earth. And when we see Jesus face to face, by the grace of God, we will be sinless. But what this is saying is oftentimes we who may claim to be Christians yet have a a constant, continual, prevailing, intoxicating, habitual, cannot shake it, cannot stop it, sin in our life, we should probably push on the gospel a little harder. We should probably apply the gospel to our life and let it look down deep inside of us and make sure that we have that beautiful gospel with that sin-killing power inside of us because Christ does give us a power to defeat sin. He does give us the Holy Spirit that that pushes sin out by the power of the gospel. And so for the Christian, we should always be examining ourselves, and we should always be mindful of our hope. But for those of us in here who who are not Christians, you are under the wrath of God because of your sin. And growing up, I always hated that terminology because it's like, do people, like, are you just downers? Like, just come in and you're under wrath, deal with it. But there's no, there's no statement more loving than you are under the wrath of God because we don't say that to condemn you, but we say that to point you to the cross who saves us and redeems us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. But because of sin, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. Let no one deceive you with empty words, Paul says. It's not every man for himself. Do whatever you want as long as it doesn't harm anyone else. It's not boys being boys. It's not young people being dumb. It's not the age of experimentation. It is sin. And sin and all that it clings to will one day be destroyed by a holy and pure God. That's the wrath of God. That's the justice of God. A holy God and a loving parent will destroy the thing that is most toxic to his children. God will destroy sin. But the beautiful thing is that there's a flip side of wrath. Wrath is one side of the coin. On one side is wrath, but on the other side is God's inheritance. On the other side is God's acceptance. On the other side is God's love. You see, on the other side of wrath is complete acceptance through Christ, the Christ that Paul has so vigorously proclaimed to us. On the other side is Christ's atoning sacrifice. On the other side is what Paul calls the immeasurable riches of grace stored up for you in Christ. Storehouses and fountainheads flowing with mercy stemming from the cross of Christ. On the other side is joy forevermore. On the other side is the inheritance of the saints joined in light. What was wrath on one side, on the other side for those are who are covered by the blood of Christ is the greatest inheritance and the greatest joy we could ever know. And Paul writes this not to trap you in wrath, but to point you to inheritance. And so why is Paul making these warnings? It's not because Paul is against fun and because Paul is against youth and against experience. Paul is writing these things and warning us Christians of falling prey to sin because Paul is for joy. 
Because Paul is for thanksgiving. Because Paul is for community. And Paul is for life. And Paul is for glory. And glory is for those who were once darkness, but have been made light in the Lord for those who walk as children of light. That's who Paul is writing this for. This is an affirmation for us to live in accordance to what Christ has done for us. This is a warning to us to put off the things that kill our joy and kill Christ's glory and cling to the one who gives us power and victory over sin. And this is what we as the church hold each other to. We hold each other to this. Why? Because we like pointing out people's sin? No, because unfortunately sometimes pointing out people's sin is the best way to restore them to worship. It's the best way to bring them back into the love of God. And this is what Paul says in verses 7 through 10. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. That stuff sounds really good, but this is really where things get hard for us. Because it's easy to say, walk as children of light, discern what is good and holy and, and pure, but it's a lot harder to actually walk as children of, the, children of the light. It's actually a lot harder to have a right view of discernment. And, and that's because so many times we are harbors of darkness and harbors of sin. We hold sin in our hearts, hatred in our hands, and shame in our minds. And so many times we as, as Christians and as non-believers, we have things that we know we've done or we know we're capable of, things we've committed or things we fear that truly make us ashamed. We feel like we can't crawl out from under it. We feel like we can't shake it. And so what is our hope? We look at that, that, that picture that Paul put up there. Walk as children of the light. Do good. Do holy. Do pure. Do all of that. And we look at our own lives and we say, I can't do that. It doesn't work for me. I'm too weak. I'm too feeble. I've sinned too many times. How can we who wrestle with darkness be brought into that light? Because light means things get exposed and no one likes to be exposed. No one wants their dirty laundry to be seen, right? No one likes that. No one likes having a conversation come up that catches them off guard, let alone having your deepest, darkest secrets come up in a public discourse. No one signs up for that class. In your speech one-on-one class, mine was right over here in, in is it stone building now? Was the old journalism building? No one on their speech got up there and confessed sin. No one doesn't come natural to us. And Jesus knew that. And he said this in John 3.20, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. And don't we fear that exposure? Isn't that what we, we fear? And this is the dilemma. And it's a dilemma both for Christians and non-Christians. It's a dilemma for Christians because we think that we become Christian and now we need to be sinless. And when we sin or we wrestle with sin, we feel like we can't let anybody know about that because as a Christian, because Christ died for us, we, we need to be perfect and any sin that we have needs to be hidden away and tucked away and no one can look at it, no one can know about it, and no one should hear about it because we're perfect. We're the saints. Don't talk about it and maybe it'll go away. Don't deal with it, and maybe it'll disappear. And for non-Christians, even if they start seeing something out of sync in their life, or they want to clean up their life, they see church and they say, well, I have to hit benchmarks before I can go to church. 
Right? The church is for the perfect people. I need to go. I need to, I need to break this habit. I need to be three months sober. I need to not do this for this amount of time. I need to up my game. I need to put on church clothes before I go to church. So they try to purify themselves before they come to God. But look at what Paul says in Ephesians 5, 11 through 12. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. And so the biggest sin I've wrestled with as a Christian is lust. And I know for many people in here, that may be your sin. I know for many people, it might be different things. It might be that, 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 that uh, you, I don't need to tell you what your greatest sin is. You know that. But what Paul's writing to here isn't strictly sexual sins, but it's sins that span the gamut of things, sins that dethrone Christ. Idolater is a term Paul uses here. But I used to be um, severely enamored by pornography, and the lingering side effects of that are is that I have a tendency in my heart and in my mind to lust. You could remove the porn, but that tendency and that habit I built up inside of me is something that I constantly have to fight against. And I can't wait for the day when that tendency is removed by the grace of God. And my heart is made wholly pure in front of that. But I could tell you this, that when I would be wrestling with lust or if I just looked at porn, I would look at this verse and you know it would jump out at me. The only thing I would see is take, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness for it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. Now I would look at that and I would say, shame, Tyler. Shame on you. Look at you. It says take no part. It says it's shameful to even speak of the things you're doing and you're doing it. It's embarrassing to talk about it, and you're doing it. And you know what I would do? I would, I would then get introverted on myself. I would get more depressed with myself. I would start this, this funnel down where it's like, well, now the only thing I have left is my sin. Now the only thing I have left is, is, is shrinking back and not sharing and not exposing because I don't want to be found out because it's shameful. I should take no part in these things. But I missed the key part of that verse. I miss the hinge that holds this text together. Look at it again. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. You see, the weight of that passage is on the, the exposure of our sin. And I read that, and I'm like, it has to be the other two things because no one does that. Who wants that? How, where, where, how do I do that? Why would I do that? No way would I do that. How could I expose my most shameful tendencies, my deepest secrets? No one wants to see that. It's embarrassing. It's humiliating. That is a typo, Paul. <laughs> no one wants that. But the final hope Paul gives us is that God is dripping with grace. I love this text. 11 through 14. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and the light of Christ will shine on you. What a beautiful text. What a glorious hope. 
You see, where culture tells you to hide your true self, the gospel calls you to expose it. Why should we expose our shame? Why should we expose our folly? Why should we expose our weakness? Is it because God likes humiliation? No, it's because when it's exposed, it becomes visible. And when it's visible in the light of Christ, it becomes light because of the overwhelming redemptive light of Christ. Because of Christ's redemptive majesty, we are freed from our sin. Because Christ took our deepest darkness and bore it on his chest for all to see on the cross. He has freed you from sin and your sin has already been seen by God the Father. Your sin has been seen by your harshest critic. Your sin has been seen by the one who your sin was primarily against. And if God has seen it, let the world see it because Christ bore it in a way we could never bear it. Our sin has been atoned for. Our sin has been been made clean. Our hearts have been made pure. And now we can walk as children of the light. You see, the good news of the gospel is that the gospel's for the sinner. The gospel's for those who can't get it together. I saw this quote by Charles Spurgeon this week, and I love it. He says this. He says, May I therefore urge upon anyone who have no good thing about them who fear that they have not even a good feeling or anything whatsoever that can recommend them to God, that they will firmly believe that our gracious God is able and willing to take them without anything to recommend them and to forgive them spontaneously, not because they are good, but because he is good. You see, in Galatians, Paul warns us in Galatians 5 to avoid a list of similar things, and he says the solution is to walk by the Spirit. And man, it is a grace to walk by the Spirit. Romans 12 says that. He says, therefore, um, by the mercies of God, present yourself as, as a living sacrifice, holy and pure to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. It is a grace to walk by the Spirit. And look at what Paul says about grace in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 15. For it is for, for it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. You see, thanksgiving is empty without the gospel. You can look at that list and you could try to be thankful for things, but your reasons will fade. You can maybe not be sexually immoral because you're married. You can maybe not be impure because you have a content blocker. You can maybe not be foolish because you have an accountability partner. You can maybe not make crude jokes because you act like someone standing next to you all the time. But if those are the reasons for your thankfulness, those will fade. But when grace in the gospel of Christ is what causes a spring of thanksgiving to flow up in you, there is nothing that can shake that. And so the thing Things that we once wrestled with become produced and carried away in a spring of hope because Christ is greater than our sin. A focus on grace produces a life of thanksgiving and a life of thanksgiving is sin expelling and Christ glorifying. Expose your sin to Christ. Expose your sin to your Christian brothers and sisters. That's why this was written to the church is it's for the church. If God's seen it, your friend can see it. Expose your sin, confess it to the cross, and bear it no more. Boast in Christ by exposing yourself to his glorious gaze and beautiful care. Remove God's wrath from your shoulder and enter into the greatest inheritance and the most joy-filled life you will ever know. This is our hope, this is our battle, and this is our gospel. So walk as children of the light. Let's pray.
Lord, in this moment, as we pause um, in prayer, as we pause for reflection, as we pause for worship, may the light of Christ fall on us and say to us, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, for the light of Christ has fallen upon you. Lord, for the Christian, give us hope. For the non-Christian, bring us mercy. May we choose to see this list that Paul has given us and respond by saying, no, thank you, because I am satisfied by a greater hope. Because I'm abounding in joy because of the cross of Christ. Where my sin is gone. Where the shame is removed. Where the burden I bear no more. Because it is well with my soul. Lord, give us hearts to say this. Give us hearts to be thankful for this. Lord, we thank you that not in our deepest, most shameful state did you ever leave us, but through the cross you are drawing those who would be yours to you. Make your glory known in this place tonight. Make it known in our hearts and may it resound throughout the campus of the University of Montana. Praise in your name.